Hello, and welcome to episode eight of Inside the Nudge Unit, the podcast that takes you right into the heart of the Behavioural Insights team. BIT was set up in 2010 by the UK government as the world's first nudge unit. We work around the world with public and private sector partners to apply the latest insights from behavioural science. Our aim is to inform policy, improve public services, and deliver positive results for people and communities. In this podcast, we speak to researchers and policy advisors from across the BIT family to discuss their fascinating work and explore the insights they're using to tackle everything from inequality in the workplace to climate change. My name is Ashley Coakley, and I'm joined by my colleague, Elizabeth Costa. In this episode, we're speaking to BIT's Dr. Vera Newman and Monica Wills-Silver. We'll be exploring their work in Australia and Latin America to reduce sexual harassment and violence against women, both on university campuses and in the home. We'll then be joined by our colleagues Nita Broughton and Ravi Dutapal to talk about our recent thought leadership pieces on how to apply a behavioural and experimental lens to economic policy making. So let's get started. In the wake of the Me Too movement, many governments and organisations have been searching for evidence-based strategies to combat sexual harassment and intimate partner violence. Today, we're joined by two of our colleagues, Dr. Vera Newman and Monica Wills-Silver, who've recently done some really important work on these issues in Australia and Latin America. In Australia, the Human Rights Commission reports that one in four Australian university students have experienced sexual harassment on campus or while travelling to campus. And Vera and her colleagues have been looking at how the behaviour of bystanders, that is those who are not directly involved but are bearing witness, can have a positive impact on deterring harassment on university campuses. And their hope is that this can act as an exemplar for other institutions and workplaces. In El Salvador, a shocking 67% of women have experienced some type of violence throughout their lives. Monica's been working with the Inter-American Development Bank to encourage women in the country, and indeed across Latin America, to access a psychosocial support helpline. Welcome to you both. Let's start with you introducing yourselves and your roles at BIT, and if you could give us just a quick overview of your work that you're going to be discussing today. Vera, over to you. Thanks. So my name is Vera Newman. I'm a research advisor at BIT's Sydney office and I work across many streams of work. Today I'm going to be talking a little bit about our work in the sexism and sexual harassment space. Thanks, Vera. Monica. Thanks, Liz. Uh, Yeah, my name is Monica Wills. I'm a principal advisor in our London office where I co-lead our work in low and middle income countries. And today I'm going to be talking about our work on encouraging help-seeking behaviours amongst women in El Salvador and Honduras. Vera, over to you. Can you tell us more about the Bystander Project and particularly how it came about? Yeah, absolutely. So this project came from a piece of work about bystanders for primary prevention that the Victorian government commissioned a couple of years ago. And the project was really all about building evidence around what we can do to influence bystander behaviour, particularly for young people and men, so that they can safely challenge sexism, discrimination and gender inequality. So this aligned with the Victorian government's aims to prevent all forms of violence toward women. And we were particularly excited to work on this project because bystander behaviours are so crucial in not only changing the outcome of one particular interaction, but also to create and shape positive behaviours and social change throughout society.
Vera, I suppose this is a bit of a broad question, but just how big of a problem is sexual harassment on university campuses, both in Australia and elsewhere? Yeah, I mean, it is a very broad question. So uh, as Liz alluded to in the introduction, the Australian Human Rights Commission released the Change the Course report in 2017, which detailed the experiences of university students on campus. And what they actually found is that one in four students in Australia reported being sexually harassed in a university setting or while travelling to university in 2016. And one in four students also witnessed another student being sexually harassed while at university. So we know that this is a serious problem on university campuses. Vera, you've been running the project for several years now. What are your findings? What can you tell us about um, what you've learned? Yeah, so what we actually know is that bystanders play a really important role in intervening in a situation, particularly when they've witnessed sexism or sexual harassment. So bystanding or intervening can protect the target, it can discourage the perpetrator, and it can communicate to the others present that the behaviour is unacceptable. So what we did is we wanted to run an intervention to encourage bystanders to take action if they witness sexism or sexual harassment on campus. So we sent students and staff a series of five emails and we found that our email series or one particular email uh, type of email increased the number of people reporting that they took bystander action against sexual harassment by about a third relative to those who didn't get the emails. And the most successful email had two components. So firstly, it provided some strategies or the know-how for people to take action if they witness sexual harassment. And this is really important because we know that often people intend to take action, but they don't. And this can be because they don't know what to do or how to do it when they see sexual harassment. Vera, for the the nerdy listeners amongst us, um, you said that the intervention decreased uh, reported uh, behaviours. And, you know, can you tell us a bit more about why you were looking at at reported behaviours here rather than observing actual behaviour? Yeah, that's a really good question. So in the university context, um, it it can obviously be quite challenging to to look at what is happening to every single person across the course of every single day. So, you know, ideally, if we could have observed, had had real behaviour, we would have done that. But unfortunately, short of, you know, following every single university student around with a drone, we weren't really able to do that. So instead, what we did is we asked students to tell us or students and staff to tell us what their experiences were. So for the particular university that we were working with, we sent out a survey to the people that were in the intervention and we asked them about what they had experienced over the course of the the previous eight weeks. Vera, can you kind of go a little bit more into detail about the successful arms of the trial or the intervention? Yeah, so what we found and what we think was the crucial ingredient of the emails were some social norms statements that highlighted what people believe is right and what people would actually do. So, for example, one of our headlines was, most of us study on campus think it's right to call someone out for making sexist jokes or comments. And 78% said they themselves would intervene if they saw sexism and sexual harassment on campus. And so what's really great is we found that highlighting these social norms about what others believe is right and what others would do themselves is a really powerful way to change people's active bystanding behaviour. Vera, it's a, it's a really interesting set of results. Um, so I've just come back from Australia and for our listeners who are not based in Australia, there's currently enormous scrutiny on the culture and behaviours in the federal parliament house um, following a rape allegation and a lot of focus on how to change cultures in in workplaces and institutions across the country. 
Can you talk a bit about, you know, what you think the the general applicability of this, these results are? Do you think Parliament House and other institutions could take them on board to improve their culture? Of course. So I think that's a really great question. And I think that our results speak to a couple of things. Firstly, a clarifier, I think it's important to point out that sexual harassment and sexual assault are two very different things, but the point still holds. For this particular project that we're talking about, it was conducted in universities, um, but it still holds relevance for other institutions and workplaces. In fact, we just completed a project looking at the prevalence of sexism and sexual harassment in workplaces and found that Workplaces are facing similar challenges to universities. About one in three Victorians reported seeing sexism or sexual harassment while they were working remotely. And actually, perhaps somewhat encouragingly, about half of those who witnessed something reported taking action. What is important here is that actually other universities and workplaces need to recognise the particular challenges in their environment and build interventions to suit the context that they are working in. What I will say is that there is real great potential with these initiatives, but that it's also incredibly important to dig beneath the surface and understand why these behaviours are occurring and what the underlying causes are. And so you need to target your initiatives at what is really going on in your workplace or organisation, rather than hoping that, you know, a short email intervention can radically change the deeply embedded culture in an organisation. Monica, We heard that terrible statistic about the extent of violence against women in El Salvador. Can you tell us a bit more about the projects you've been working on in Latin America? Thank you so much, Ashling. This project actually started in 2018 when we began working with the Inter-American Development Bank on a report that aimed to provide policymakers in Latin America with recommendations on how behavioural science could help improve existing services for survivors. And so that work included two big phases. One was a diagnosis phases where we did some qualitative work, including interviews and focus groups with service providers and a literature review to understand some of the potential barriers that women were facing to access the hotlines and the support services that were available to them. And the second part of that work was coming up with a series of potential intervention ideas that could help improve those services for women and that could help improve their access to to the help services that were there for them. After the report was presented, we began working with two gender specialists at the bank that covered their work in Honduras and El Salvador. They're called Monserrat Bustelo and Nidia Hidalgo. And we decided to focus on help seeking in El Salvador, partly because of the, the the statistic that you presented at the beginning. So six out of 10 women in El Salvador report having experienced violence in their lives, but also because of those women who report experience violence in their lives, only a third, about 30% of women report actually seeking help. And so we wanted to see if there was something that we could do to help. Why is it, do you think, that help-seeking behaviours are so low among women in El Salvador and Latin America? So social norms play a really big role in a context like El Salvador when it comes to gender-based violence. Most women have experienced violence in their lives, 6 to 7 out of 10, um, and only a minority seek help, only a minority report, only a minority access the services. So there's a lot of prevalence. Prevalence is quite high and that prevalence is also um, found in the perception of of people, the people that we spoke to. 
What we did in order to understand some of the barriers was mapping out what we call the end user journey, or in this case, the help seeking journey women go through when they're trying to access the support services. We broke that journey down into three stages in order to identify all of the behaviors that we could target. So the first stage is awareness, and that is women identifying their situation or their relationship as a violent one, realizing that they're in a violent relationship. The second one is making the decision to seek help, to report, to do something about it. And then the third one is taking that step. So actually doing it, accessing the services. I'll give you a couple of examples of the barriers. We'll be publishing um, these reports soon. And so you'll be able to see more details, more of the details there. But in terms of awareness, one of the barriers that we identified was availability bias, whereby basically um, our behaviors influenced by what we can remember with ease. So for instance, images that are constantly in the media or around us in government programs. And what we found is that women or gender-based violence tends to be portrayed more as physical violence on those sort of campaigns than other types of violence. And so women who are experiencing psychological violence, emotional violence, economic violence, other types of violence are less likely to see the services as something that is there for them, something that can help them. So there's a barrier there. In terms of them making the decision, we found that there's a huge intention action gap and that's partly caused by uncertainty aversion. So what we found is basically that women are very scared of what's going to happen next of what will happen if they actually seek help or if they go to somebody or if they tell someone what they're going through. And that fear is not only related to things like, oh, how will I provide for my children? Where will we live? But it's also about things like, who is going to pick up the phone when I call the hotline? What are they going to ask me? How long is this call going to take? Is he going to notice I'm on the phone? Is that sort of thing that is very present in their minds when deciding whether or not to seek help? We also found what we're calling anticipated stigma. And so women factor that in when making the decision as to whether or not they they'll seek help. Your work in El Salvador utilized something called the Violento Metro. Can you explain a bit more about what the Violento Metro played in the trial in El Salvador? Of course, yeah. So it's El Violento Metro. You said it very well, Ashley. Uh, which is a, is a violentometer, if you translate it, which basically is a, is a tool that is widely used in uh, several Latin American countries, not just El Salvador, uh, which is meant to portray or break down violence into very specific behaviors and show them as a scale in a thermometer. The idea behind this was to show women that were experiencing behaviors perhaps towards the bottom of the thermometer, that the support services were also there for them um, and that the situation could very rapidly escalate to one of the more complicated or more serious behaviors towards the top of the thermometer rather than being a slow step-by-step linear progression, if that makes sense. In order to do that, what we did is that we turned the violentometer into a wheel 
and self-presenting violence in a cycle. And what we found, which is very interesting, is that the violentometer was actually the most effective tool in increasing women uh, clicking on the link and going to a page to find out more information about the support services. Um, in comparison to a control group, we saw a 157% increase in women accessing those that information. But we also found that the wheel was effective in increasing women going to that landing page. So it increased click-throughs by 56% versus a control group. So what kind of modifications or additions did you make to this tool and why did you believe that they would be successful in encouraging women to seek help? Yeah, so through our project, we actually wanted to do two things. The first one was that there was no evidence behind the violentometer in terms of it encouraging or increasing help-seeking behaviours among women. So we wanted to test the violentometer on help-seeking behaviours. And then the modification, the main modification that we wanted to do was to change the way in which the violentometer was presented so that it didn't show a linear progression of violent behaviours, but instead it showed uh, violence as a cycle. I think one of the most distressing elements of COVID-19 and particularly the COVID lockdowns around the world has been the rise in intimate partner violence. Can you talk about what kind of impact you saw the pandemic having on violence against women in El Salvador and Honduras and also how you thought about that as part of the project and perhaps particularly how you thought about that wheel and cycle of violence? This project and the one that we undertook in Honduras both ended up being implemented during the pandemic and and during the lockdowns. And one of our main concerns when we were thinking about how to adjust this work to a context where women will be indoors and trapped with their perpetrators was how do we reach out to them? How do we get in touch with them? How do we make sure that this information is actually getting to the women in a way that they are still safe, right? So there were two considerations. One is we need to make sure that they're still able to access these health support channels. And the second one was it shouldn't be too salient to know, to make sure that we're not putting women in a, in a situation of danger. And so what we did at the end was that we implemented these experiments on Facebook. In El Salvador, women have access to Facebook through their core uh, mobile phone contracts so they can mm-hmm. access it unlimitedly and so we we made sure that like they saw it as a, as another ad on their facebook page basically um and it led them to the support channel um hotline as well as like a whatsapp group and other pages with information what we found in Honduras is that uh, women who were exposed to the image displaying this contrafactual thinking or addressing some costs were 12% more likely to visit a landing page with support services information and links to the hotline and a WhatsApp group. 
we also found that women that saw an image that aimed to address uncertainty aversion, which is one of the barriers I mentioned earlier, uh, were 20% more likely to visit that page. Our secondary analysis, actually, which is also interesting, was um, measuring whether or not women actually clicked on the support services on the hotline link, as well as the email link, uh, the WhatsApp link. And we found that all of the images that we created for this trial increase women's propensity to go to those services through that landing page. I see. And so um, there was nothing on their phones that, that would have identified that they were accessing this information. Exactly. Yeah. And even the landing page that we created had a panic button. So if at any point when they were in the landing page, they, would, they could just click on that and then it would um, turn the page into a recipe. Um, so as if they were Googling a recipe. That's amazing. Very well thought out. In the trial in Honduras, you mentioned the sunk cost fallacy of leaving a potentially violent relationship. Can you tell us a bit more about what the sunk cost fallacy is and why it might be um, deterring women from seeking help? Absolutely, yeah. So the sunk cost uh, bias in this case or fallacy it's basically a cognitive biases that causes individual to, to take into account previous costs when making a decision about the future or previous investments. And so what we saw through our qualitative work was, was one of the considerations that women had when making the decision whether or not to seek help was what they had built with um, their partner, be that a house, a family, and um, a relationship they had invested uh, many years of their lives into. And one of the things that we wanted to do through this intervention was leveraging what we're calling contrafactual thinking. So try not to focus so much on that song cost or the previous, the past of that relationship, but actually encouraging women to see themselves in the future, to look into the future and try and see what life could be like in a different scenario. And for that purpose, we basically created a story, a very short story, because this is just a part of a Facebook ad, where a woman was telling another one how her life changed after leaving the perpetrator and what it was like for her now that she was able to get support in the support services. It's super interesting listening to both of you talk about the details of these specific projects. To what extent do you think this is a shared challenge and endeavor across Latin America, across the world? I want to sit on the fence here a little bit and say that there is a shared approach, but that it needs to bear in mind the differences between the context that we're working in. And it's really important to focus on differences in context. So you can't just package up an intervention and slap a new sticker on it and hope it does the same thing. You need to firstly understand the context that you're working with and, and prepare the organisations or the workplaces or the universities and the people in there. You then need to implement the intervention, whatever that intervention or solution is. And then you need to evaluate that to check that it's working and to sense check that that nothing is, is backfiring, essentially. And I think that's where, you know, the first steps of approaching this challenge come in. Preparing your organisation and wherever it is that you're trying to make change and understanding the specific barriers and the specific challenges that arise in that context. I, I very much agree with what Vera said in terms of the importance of always tailoring whatever you're doing to the local context. 
especially when you're looking at um, services, support services, because a very slight difference in how a service is presented, portrayed, how you access it can create a barrier. And so it's important that you focus on understanding the context as much as you are applying what we've learned in our context. So that's one. I also think that, just to complement Vera's point, that what's really helpful about what we've done is that we're breaking a very complex challenge into more addressable behavioral steps. And Mm -hmm. part of what we did with the help-seeking journey was exactly that, because sometimes you say something like, oh, we're encouraging women to seek help. And we're not really thinking about how many steps that process entails, right? Like how many things do women have to go through in order to access those services? Mm -hmm. It's not just one decision, it's a journey. And it's a journey full of decisions and understanding each one of them might mean that there are marginal improvements that you can do along the way. And I think that applies. You can do that in any country, really. Fantastic. Thank you. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you both. Thanks for coming on Inside the Nudge Unit. If you're interested in learning more about the work Monica and Vera were talking about, as always, there's more detail on our website, www.bi.team. We'll also post some relevant links in the podcast notes. For many years, BIT has been pioneering a behavioral and experimental approach to economic policymaking, essentially applying behavioral economics to economics itself. We caught up with our colleagues Ravi and Nida to talk about their recent work in this space. Before we start, a couple of notes from us. Firstly, in this discussion, you'll hear references to micro, meso and macro level change. Let me tell you what we mean. When we talk about macro level change, we're referring to issues that affect the economy as a whole, inflation, economic growth and productivity. Meso-level change is looking at market-level interventions, so things like how to make switching between providers easier. And finally, micro-level change is focused on changes that affect individuals. So for example, how we encourage people to boost their savings. As the world recovers from the deepest economic shock of our lifetime due to the impact of COVID-19, the need for effective economic policies is greater than ever. And as you'd expect, we at BIT feel very strongly that now is a crucial and opportune time to rethink our markets and economies and to put human behaviour at their heart. With four Nobel Prizes for a behavioural economist, one of the peculiar ironies of behavioural economics is actually how little it's been applied to traditional economic policy. While there's been many successes in discrete areas like tax compliance, we're yet to see many interventions that focus on the market as a whole. For example, looking to shift the behaviour of businesses to boost economic growth and productivity. So with that ambition in mind, last November we published our Behavioural Economy Report. This was kindly funded by a Friends Provident Foundation and it explores various ways behavioural insights can bring a better understanding of human behaviour into economic policy. And that work was built on by BITS Australian team who published a partner report, Making Markets Better, which looks specifically at how behavioural science and evidence-based strategies can play a role in economic policy making in Australia and New Zealand. So today we're joined by Anita Broughton, our Head of Economic Policy here in London and lead author of the Behavioural Economy Report, and Ravi Dutapal, a Senior Advisor from our Sydney office and the driving force behind Making Markets Better. Welcome to you both. It's great to have you on the podcast. 
If we could start with you, Nita, can you tell our listeners why we wrote the Behavioural Economy Report? Yeah, sure. I mean, the paper is really all about making a case for bringing a more behavioural approach into economic policymaking. So taking real evidence about how we as humans make choices about things like what to buy, where we work, where we live, and then really taking that understanding of how people really make choices and make decisions and putting that at the heart of economic policymaking. There's a lot of behavioural factors that explain why markets do the things that they do and why economies work the way they work. And this report is all about trying to bring that understanding into economic policymaking, starting out with 10 ideas for policymakers to consider, explore and implement. It is very much a starting point. We really see this as sort of, you know, First up, we want other researchers, other policymakers, other collaborators to come in and work with us to make this a reality because there are some real untapped opportunities in here if we get things right. Absolutely. And, you know, market failure is a very familiar terrain for economic policymakers and economists generally. Uh, And what we're really doing here is making the case for another class of market failures, which are those that stem from behavioural biases. We call these behavioural market failures. And for those who haven't read the Behavioural Economy Report yet, and we hope that all of our listeners will read it, can you give us an overview of what are the 10 ideas uh, we propose to overcome those behavioural market failures? Sure. So we split these 10 ideas into three different areas, what we call micro, meso or market level and macro. So the micro level ideas are all about individual behaviour. So prompting individuals to do things in what we think of as a sort of nudge by nudge basis. So things like um, prompting consumers to switch, prompting job seekers to apply for training or apply for new roles in growing sectors, prompting um, people to think about um, how to manage their money better, perhaps save in different ways. So that's the sort of first section. And I think in that area, actually, behavioural economics has already been relatively influential. Mm-hmm. And it's really about finding new opportunities to do even more to make policy across the board more effective, particularly in some of these areas around employment, consumer savings policy. Yes. And then the next section is really about MISO and market level um, ideas. So this is all about how in the presence of behavioural biases, suppliers often have greater incentives to exploit those biases. So often making products and services and switching more complicated rather than competing on things like quality or price or value for money for consumers. So I think anyone who's system, tried to unsubscribe from a uh, any kind of subscription would sympathise with that. Absolutely. That's a great example. The ideas in this section are all about what can regulators do to better measure the extent to which businesses are actually doing this? And also, Mm -hmm. how can we bring better transparency into markets so we shift that axis of competition towards getting businesses instead to be competing on these other metrics like quality and value for money rather than complexity? The third and final category of ideas is around macro policy, so about the health and stability of the overall economy. And in that section, we look at things like how can we make um, tax reliefs for investment much more effective by better targeting the specific reasons why decision makers in businesses may not be investing? How can we plan ahead for the next economic shock? No, we're not 
we're still not over COVID-19 <laughs> one, but, you know, we need to look ahead. And also, how can we think about communications as a policy tool in its own right to support the health and stability of the overall macroeconomy? Thanks, Nita. Ravi, just to turn to you, what are the unique challenges facing Australia and New Zealand and their economies at the moment? And are there any kind of additional recommendations that you made in the report Making Markets Better? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. So Australia and New Zealand, relative to other countries, have done pretty well in terms of stopping the spread of, of, of COVID and kind of had a, a more shallow recession, but still quite significant economic impacts. But nonetheless, you know, still still some, some interesting challenges. And so our recommendations from the report really drew on some of the same concepts, but applied them a little bit differently. So one of the ideas that we were looking at in particular was around retirement savings. So some of your listeners may know that Australia has one of the largest pools of, of retirement assets in the world, um, well beyond kind of what our population would, would suggest. New Zealand, in contrast, has a relatively small one. But both of those countries have a really interesting challenge in that analysis shows that the kind of costs of, of these of managing funds is still relatively high. And despite quite significant growth in both countries, those costs aren't coming down. Now, traditional economics would suggest that as your kind of asset size grows, you should see economies of scale. You know, it shouldn't cost you 10 times as much to, to manage $10 billion as it does to, to manage a billion dollars. Um, but for some reason, it seems like it does. So there's obviously some sort of issue going on in terms of competition and efficiency within the retirement savings markets, both in Australia and New Zealand. And so our recommendations have, have focused on some of those sorts of challenges. You know, so for example, one of the things we're talking about is we want to see some, some, comp, some real competition um, within the superannuation uh, sector in Australia and the KiwiSaver sector in New Zealand. Ravi, what do you think are the main behavioural barriers to competition in the superannuation market? I think some of the listeners might be familiar with that one of the most powerful forces, and particularly in retirement savings, is the power of defaults uh, and, and inertia, essentially. And you know, a lot of governments, so New Zealand has done it, as the UK have, have made people enrol automatically um, as a sort of you know, classic mm-hmm. nudge. Australia has in its retirement space what I like to call a shove, Um, So we have mandatory retirement savings from any time you start working and there are very, very low thresholds, uh, basically. Yes, that's why I have a pot from when I was 16 working in a fish and chip shop. (laughs) Exactly, right? It it doesn't take a lot. Basically, we'll have roughly 10% of your your income, it's changed over the years, put into one of these superannuation funds, which is, I guess, great. But the, the flip side is there's not that driving force to kind of uh, driving that competition. The money just kind of mm. flows in kind of constantly. And, you know, it, it is the sort of flip side of, of the power of defaults is that the money just kind of goes in and people don't have to do very much. And so they don't. Um, and there is a bit of a hassle involved in trying to switch and consolidate. Now, there have been a lot of steps made to make it easier, but for a lot of people, it's quite challenging. It's also kind of challenging to, to kind of compare these sorts of funds against each other. You know, obviously you're comparing returns, you're comparing costs, mm. and it's, you know, it's, it's not an easy decision. You, it's quite a complex financial product in some respect. And so it's difficult to, to find a way to, to create that competition um, from consumers themselves. And actually, there may be a scope for governments to get involved and set up systems and processes that drive those sorts of competitive outcomes. In the present crisis, government is the solution to our problem. 
Nita, as you know, much of BIT's early work looked at nudging individuals and discrete behaviours. So, for example, getting people back into work faster, um, encouraging children to attend school. And really what we advocate in this report is to move beyond those individual behaviours and to look at the market as a whole. So thinking about how we can nudge businesses and institutions, but also how we can use behavioural insights to change and shape the competitive dynamics of a market. Can you talk us through that evolution in thinking um, and perhaps bring it to life with an example of, of what we mean by changing the competitive dynamics? Sure. I think probably the best example to pick here is our work in energy markets, much of which we did with the UK regulator Ofgem. And, you know, as you say, at the very start, we um, were thinking very much about these, um, what you might call smaller nudges or perhaps communications-based nudges where you're doing things like you've got a whole set of consumers who aren't switching. Okay, let's send a whole set of letters out. Let's tell them what the best offers on the market are. Let's use that as a way to prompt them to switch. So it trickled energy mm. switching um, from the base rate. And we also discovered some really interesting things along the way, like the fact that it's actually more effective to send letters from the current supplier rather than getting the regulator to send the letter, who you might plausibly think might be a more effective message of being an independent body. That turned out that wasn't the case. So that's obviously a great step forward. However, the base switching rate is still low. So a tripling in energy switching is great, but because switching levels are still really low year to year, you're still only talking about perhaps a few percent of the market moving. And so that's not really getting to the kind of level where it causes suppliers and businesses to react substantially to, mm. you know, perhaps bring new offers into the market to deliver better quality, etc. So then the next stage moving on from that was to look at, okay, well, what are these sort of like other barriers that are going on that are stopping people from switching? And of course, there are many, not just sort of informational ones, and in particular, friction costs to switching are very, very substantial. And we know from the behavioural insights literature that having to spend even a very small amount of effort and time on something disproportionately affects whether people will do it or not. So we increasingly started looking at ways of taking out those frictions and a more recent program of work um, that Ofgem did that we supported on through quality assurance looked at effectively collective switching. So sending letters to customers, providing an exclusive tariff plus personalised support from a comparison service to actually help with the switch that resulted in eight times as many customers switching. So going from sort of two and a half percent to around 22%. So that is much larger in magnitude. And that starts to get you to a switching rate where actually, you know, you're getting the suppliers to sit up and go, hang on, actually, we do need to do something to compete, to keep this market share. We do need to think about our pricing. We need to think about our quality of service. And then I think, you know, there's a step further beyond that as well, which we're starting to get to now. So in the UK, there are a lot of initiatives by the regulators and um, business department looking at how we can better use 
so-called sort of smart data to enable services such as switching. Recently in the UK, we had the Energy Market White Paper, which looked at automated switching. So the idea that you would automatically be switched to a better deal if you've been on a poorer deal for some time. And you can imagine actually that more automated switching could have an even bigger effect on the market in terms of, you know, making suppliers actually do something to um, improve the offer that they're giving to consumers. So I think that's, you know, quite a good example of how over time with more trials, better evidence on what works, better evidence on the barriers to switching. We've kind of moved from a place of sort of relatively sort of like nudge by nudge approaches to really understand, in fact, that actually you need to change some of the market level infrastructure to have a bigger impact on the market as a whole. One of the interesting aspects of that is that it it does require a more activist, if you like, approach from regulators and government, particularly in setting, you know, the parameters for what a well-functioning market looks like and what kind of outcomes that it should be delivering for consumers, but also for businesses. What are your reflections on the state of that evolution? Well, I guess kind of first of all, there are definitely sort of areas where I think behavioural insights has had a lot of impact on policymaking. I think actually consumer policy and switching is probably one of the best examples Mm. of where it has been sort of deeply embedded. And I think recently we're seeing a lot of interesting developments in that area. So, for instance, automated switching is of increasing interest if we look at the policy landscape in the UK. Also some really interesting developments from the UK financial services regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, which is increasingly looking at the concept of sludge. So this is where businesses deliberately put frictions in the way to stop Mm -hmm. consumers making the best choices for themselves. And they're increasingly looking at things like, well, how do they perhaps give firms a consumer duty to actually measure the impact that those sludge practices are having and hopefully actually do something about it. So I think actually we're seeing quite a lot of movement in this whole space. I think it's partly because, you know, honestly, you just have to try everything else and be like, (laughs) we think it's probably not going to be the best solution, but look, let's give it a go. It's not working. All right. Well, maybe we need to bring out the big guns, particularly on automated switching. It's, It's funny. I think this is one of those cases where actually behavioral economics and economics are quite closely aligned. If you think back to your first year economics um, lectures, um, Liz, which for me were quite a while ago, you remember (laughs) that, you know, in a perfectly competitive market, consumers can kind of switch instantly and automatically. Mm. And so actually bringing in automated switching in in some respects should bring us closer to that kind of of pure economic outcome. Absolutely. No, you're so right. And, uh, you know, it, it is fantastic to to see consumers being at the centre of these um, these market interventions as well. I guess the other thing is that perhaps thinking more broadly than consumer markets and switching, I think, you know, the time that we're in now, you know, COVID-19 has, has really meant like ripping up the rule book in terms of economic policy. If you look at like the amount spent and the programmes that governments have mm. to put in place, they're kind of unthinkable or they were unthinkable a couple of years ago yeah and so I think actually there's been so much in terms of methodological advances and advances in knowledge and expertise over the past year in economic policy making and I think also 
you know, after a crisis, there's always a natural interest in wanting to figure out if there was anything we could have done better. You saw this a lot, actually, in the economics profession after the financial crisis. I think we will see that again now. And so, you know, I, I guess kind of my great hope, and I'm quite optimistic about this, is actually that makes it a really good opportunity to bring more of that behavioural thinking into the next generation of economic policy making. Absolutely. And and the key difference is that it's been paired with rigorous evaluation. So it's not just a, a good idea. It's also something that we've been able to demonstrate has wide scale positive impact on outcomes for consumers and outcomes for the market as a whole. So what are we going to do next? Well, the main thing to say is that we're looking for collaborators, whether that's other researchers, policymakers, regulators across all of the areas that we outline in the report. Um, would love to work with others more on all of these things and, you know, many related questions as well. I think perhaps if I might talk about like one and a half things that I'm most excited about. Um, the half thing I wanted to mention is that We've talked a lot about markets from a consumer perspective throughout this conversation. And one thing I wanted to say is that I think another really untapped area is businesses themselves as consumers. So your small business trying to find the right accountant, the right lawyer, the right training provider, the right customs agent, for example, they face many similar problems actually to consumers in terms of difficulty navigating the market and finding the right option. And so, you know, I think... There's so much to do there. We'd love to do more there. Um, the other sort of big area where I'd really love um, to see sort of more action is, and I slightly alluded to this earlier, was planning ahead for the next economic shock. So in response to COVID-19, governments have to stand up hundreds of billions of pounds worth of programmes in a matter of days and weeks, really. Mm. There was so little time to figure out how to do it well, how to use data science, how to use behavioural insights to really fine-tune and design some of those stimulus policies like cash payments as effectively as possible. And, you know, we do pandemic planning in the sense of we, you know, do sort of um, drills in advance to see how the health system might cope with a shock. Um, But we don't really do very much like that in economic policy making. And I really think that we should. So I'd really like over the coming months and years to see sort of greater data science and behavioural insights brought into the macro policy toolkit so that we're better prepared next time. So things like building data, infrastructure, know-how and BI expertise on how to get stimulus spending to where it's most needed and fast, having a better handle on how narratives and the economy and sentiment are affecting the way consumers and businesses respond to stimulus policy. And also bringing in some rigorous methods to rapidly challenge, test and measure stimulus policy as it's developed and rolled out so that we're really prepared next time we've got this sort of fast moving set of events that we need to respond to quickly and effectively. I couldn't agree more. And I think really many economic policymakers around the world will be, uh, you know, nodding emphatically uh, as they hear you say that as well. So, you know, if there's anyone out there who would like to work with us on that agenda, we're, we're very open to those conversations. We'd love to hear from you. Ravi, what do you want to do next in, in Australia and New Zealand? So, I mean, like, like Nita, I think there's a, a couple of things. So the first is similar to the sort of 
testing idea. One of the things we've done a little bit, little bit of and we'd love to see more of is just some of this rapid testing, particularly using some sort of online tools, where even if we can't necessarily do a field trial, you know, there's always ways that we can test consumer behavior in an online environment. You can often get really good insights. We've, we've done trials similarly in the energy space where we tested you know, different formats of energy information documents. And we actually found that different formats can change people's behavior and decision-making. So actually providing complex information up front makes people make worse decisions. But if that information isn't there, they have less confidence in, in the document. You know, so, so more of these sorts of kind of consumer-based tests, whether in the field or, or online. And the second one in particular that I'm interested in, and, and again, I sort of alluded to it earlier, is testing uh, some ways of driving competition in the, the superannuation and the Kiwi saver sector. I think that's a, an area that is ripe for, for change. And whether that is in, in obviously in the competition side or also on the side of thinking about how do we make those things more sustainable. We just released our report on, on greening pensions. I think a lot of those ideas would, would be really interesting to think about how can we put what is this, this giant pool of assets in, in Australia at least. I mean, it's it's $3 trillion plus, um, so about one and a half trillion pounds plus. You know, how, how do we put that to good use and, and, and make sure that that is doing, that is being spent and, and invested as sustainably as it can be? Absolutely. And as Ravi said, we've just published a report on greening pensions, which is on our website, and we'll hopefully speak about that on a future episode. Uh, Look, thank you both for joining us. It's been a brilliant conversation. If any of these ideas have uh, sparked ideas in your mind, uh, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, But for now, Ravi Nita, thank you for being on Inside the Nudge Unit. Thanks, guys. Thank you. That's it for episode eight of Inside the Nudge Unit. We hope you enjoyed your time learning more about our work. If you really enjoyed it, please subscribe, give us a rating and tell your friends. In the meantime, if you'd like to find out more about the Behavioural Insights team and what we've been up to, please visit our website at www.bi.team. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Medium and YouTube. If you want to get in touch about running behaviour change projects in your own organisation, please send us an email at info at bi.team. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening. We hope you return for more Inside the Nudge Unit podcast soon.